Welcome to season two of Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is season two, episode one wellness, mental health, and burnout in an otolaryngology career. My guest today is Dr. Ross Shockley, who is one of our anchor general otolaryngologists at the Denver VA, which is affiliated with the University of Colorado. Ross graduated from the University of Texas Medical School at Houston and completed his residency training in otolaryngology at Vanderbilt University. He joined our academic practice in 2016. Welcome to the show, Ross. Hello. Thanks for being on. I'm excited to have you today. Thank you. I wanted to know a little bit more about your history and background, not only how you decided on otolaryngology, but also how you even got there. So where you grew up and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I have, I didn't really know at the time, but I think I kind of have a unique background in that I've lived in a lot of different states. My dad was in the army. I was born in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, a very common military post. And I actually lived there four different times throughout my childhood. Um, Moved between like Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, and like a couple places in each of those states. So I almost went to a new school like every year and ended up in the middle of high school, I moved from Alabama to Texas, graduated there, and so I did college and med school there. You asked about choosing otolaryngology as a specialty. It's pretty hard to choose a specialty these days. You don't really know what something's going to be like until you're in the middle of it. So it's hard to choose, and there's often not a lot of mentors or there's no guidelines. There's not really, there's no one way to choose or one way to do it. But I mean, for me, I, I wanted to be a surgeon, general surgeons. I, I just, could, had a harder time connecting with. And, you know, I kind of felt like, I don't know, it might have been just my experience in my med school, but uh, there were there was an otolaryngologist who was just really cool and really welcoming into the OR and was like, hey, check this out, do this, do this. And I was just like, man, I want to be like that guy. And it, it's not really, that's not the greatest way to choose a specialty, I don't think. But I'm, I'm somebody who I think I could be happy doing a lot of different things. This is kind of just where I ended up connecting and I'm glad I did. Yeah, but I think there is something to be said about seeing yourself in someone else's shoes. And if someone you connect with really well, that's not a bad way to choose a specialty either, I don't think. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm happy it brought me here. Yeah. So then after you finished training, you decided to come to Colorado Mm -hmm. and you work at the VA. Tell me about that. As far as Colorado goes, so I trained at Vanderbilt and I kind of cast a wide net when I was looking for a job. But Denver has always just been in the back of my mind. I came to the Great American Beer Fest in 2009, and that was my first time in the city, and I really just fell in love with it. And it's always been like on my mind of somewhere, you know, let's go there. That's why that's part of the reason I ended up taking a job at the department. I I interviewed here for residency, and I really connected with the faculty. And this is actually, I ranked at number two for residency, and so I always felt a connection with this department. That's what I pursued. And what specifically do you like about your position at the VA? Yeah, I mean, I think the VA kind of fits into my history. And, you know, my dad was in the Army. My mom is kind of into genealogy, and she found that every male on my dad's side served in the military, like back to the Revolutionary War. Wow. And so there's this big military tradition in my family. I really enjoyed my VA experience in residency. I really like connecting with those people. I identify a lot with some veterans and their struggles, 
it's also kind of like a medical organization that gets a lot of flack in the media and that appeals to me to go in and like help with that. I, I also have a hard time with like the financial aspects of medicine and I don't know. I, I interviewed at several private practice jobs and this isn't a knock on anybody that does private practice, but for me, like having there be some sort of financial exchange, even if I'm not directly involved in it, associated with the care I'm giving, I'm just not comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, it raises a whole host of ethical questions sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, if you're a lot of times, and maybe this is just in me personally, I feel like if you're getting a certain, like different amounts of money for different procedures and that sort of thing, I mean, to act like that wouldn't influence clinical decision-making, I think can be kind of naive, even subconsciously that could guide you to do things for somebody that maybe they don't need or, or to embellish a little bit or do more, do things unnecessary. And so I don't know, that that was just kind of my thinking. To, to have finances eliminated from the equation was extremely appealing. That might be the number one reason I work at the VA, actually. I think at the same time, it takes a special person to work at the VA because there is a layer of government bureaucracy there that makes it sometimes difficult to take care of patients. Yeah, there is some bureaucracy, but really there's bureaucracy in medicine in all kinds of ways. Like, um in terms of billing and coding and that sort of thing and having to adjust your notes to how things are going to be billed, that's a problem that the VA, we really don't have to deal with. Like how many points are on my review of systems? Nobody's going and counting that and like holding it against me because we can't bill a level five instead of a level four or whatever it is. So I think there's pros and cons. I mean, there's definitely bureaucracy, but in any large organization in this society, there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And I do think that the VA population is a very grateful population in general, which is very rewarding. Yeah, I think so. You know, they 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 are very grateful, really. I mean, they'll be grateful if you just sit down and make eye contact and listen to them. I mean, and then, then you're gold to them. Right. Great. So we have talked about this in the past, but this episode is really about wellness in otolaryngology. Yeah. Things haven't always been so rosy for you since you joined our faculty. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I um, you know, I've been open with you about this. I I suffer from depression and anxiety. It's something that my family has had to deal with. My my father committed suicide around the time I started this job, which made getting going kind of challenging. It almost felt like I had all this personal healing to do and I was coming in and trying to take care of other people. It, it almost kind of made me feel like a, a fraud or something like that. Like, um, I, I didn't really have the time I felt like I needed to work on myself because of my job. This stuff is really hard to talk about. And, and I just have to say again, I really appreciate you being on the show and talking about this because this is the stuff no one likes to talk about. Stigmatized. Kind of, yeah, it's incredibly yeah. stigmatized. We try to suppress it, especially as surgeons. We have this complex like we're going to be superheroes. And that's not always the case. And we are real people with real flaws and no real doubt. issues that we come to the table with. So I think this is very important. Yeah. And I mean, I've gotten more open about talking about it. I mean, before... There was just so much guilt. Like, I blame myself. Like, you, I am the problem. This is my fault. And now I know that's really not true. And talking about it really leads to some diffusion of ideas that are in my mind about it. And talking about it is the only way to kind of enable your own support system at home, at work. Right, which is critical to mm. have a support system, especially critical. if you feel isolated from some your family, which was, you know, your in, original support system. 
Yeah. I mean, and I do, yeah, separate in geographic location too, for sure. I mean, I don't, I don't really have anybody in Colorado. Yeah. So what are the things that you've done to help you get through that and to seek help? So antidepressants have, have probably, I mean, I, I can say without hesitation, I think they've saved my life, you know, and good therapy. When I got so low that it was like, okay, something's going on. We really need some help. Uh, unfortunately, I have to like push it so hard. I can't just, I didn't go ask for help at like the first sign of issues. It was like when things were really, really bad. It also was kind of an ego bruise to even take antidepressants. And I've taken them a couple different ones, a couple different times in my life. And I can think of twice in particular that after taking them for a couple weeks, it was like, oh my gosh, just this realization of how different life can be. Such relief from that. Like I said, I, I can say they've, they've saved my life. And I told my therapist they saved my life. I've, I've looked into a couple different types of therapy. Traditional therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, has actually worked pretty well for me. And so that's what I go with. So I think getting help from a therapist is huge. At the same time, I was pushed just by how bad I felt to do something. And so I, I meditate every morning. I do yoga in the afternoons. And I think that's really helped too. Those lifestyle changes and also like changing my diet and that sort of thing. But really the lifestyle changes could not have gotten me there. They didn't get me there. It really was like therapy, antidepressants, time that that were the biggest things for me in terms of helping me. Yeah. And I think also as I've uh, I've had struggled with depression as, as well. And I think that as you go through that process, I feel like it's really a chemical issue, right? I know it gets stigmatized. We think it's all in our head, but it's such a chemical issue. And if you can get those chemicals back in line, then you just feel a lot better. And the world goes from this dark place where nothing makes you happy to, oh gosh, there's so much to be grateful for and appreciate. And there's so much joy that's potential in, in life. Yeah, it's just a whole perspective changer. I mean, I can remember when, like, days that I felt really bad and I, and I was blaming myself. I was like, no, I need to do this. I need to do this. And there was always, like, something that I needed to do or, you know, some changing in my thinking that needed to take place or, or something like that. But then after kind of getting through it, I mean, actually, especially the past, like, couple of months, it's like I haven't really changed that much in terms of my behavior but I have changed some medication and it was like it's like a light bulb switching it was like all those thoughts and like oh I need to do this I need to change this da, da, da. It, it's all kind of irrelevant now because it's like no it's just like baseline I feel okay and comfortable in the world and I can go do my thing and all those questions kind of fell away and became unimportant which is great you yeah. know I was like oh good it's not that I, you know, actually need to eat more lima beans or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. So why do you think well-being, finding joy in work, avoiding burnout? I mean, those are all kind of the buzzwords, right? So mm -hmm. the ACGME is, you know, giving us new regulations about them, things that we have to offer residents. Mm -hmm. um, but why is it important and not just a checklist that you have to do? Well, because we, I mean... We are the we are healing others. We take part in the healing journey of other people, and I mean, you can make it sound flowery uh, or, or whatever, but um, to take care of other people, I think 
it's prudent to be in a decent place yourself. <laughs> if you're really suffering and struggling, it gets to be a lot harder to be there for other people. I think that's that's the most important thing, and that's why it's so important. And same goes with burnout. In our profession, we obviously have to work super hard, harder than most, and there's also all the external stressors when people don't do well or things don't go well, etc. We have to be well to make others well. Yeah. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, and I, I've heard this phrase, moral injury. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, mm-hmm. but basically when you're a physician taking care of other people, when things don't go well, it's almost, it's such a reflection on you and it's a different type of burnout than, you know, I hate my job. It's easy to take it personally. Yeah, exactly. It really is. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think to some degree, it's not entirely a bad thing. I think stereotypically in the past, surgeons have been cold and standoffish and didn't really connect with their patients. And I think we can create a new paradigm where you know we can connect with people, we can help them through deeper problems while also you know helping them with whatever, whatever we're seeing them for. So you've seen other physicians in your peer group in your life have burnout, I'm sure. And I'm sure that you can recognize the signs. Do you think it's always manifested as depression or, you know, not thinking you're good enough or suicidal thoughts? Or do you think there's other manifestations that maybe are more subtle? That's a great question. I mean, I'm three years into my career now and by no means am I like some sort of expert on burnout or anything like that. But I I, I can speak very intimately about my own experience. It's tough. I, I never really felt like, oh, I was working so hard, so hard, so hard that I burned out. It was more like, that I just wasn't doing well and that that made it challenging. I, I, I don't know. I don't feel like I've encountered the modern conception of, of what burnout is. I'm sure that it would show up subtly at first. I'm sure it can manifest in all kinds of ways. The ACGME, I referred to this before, but they have policies requiring training programs to maintain a culture of well-being. So they state, quote, Psychological, emotional, and physical well-being are critical in the development of the competent, caring, and resilient physician, which I completely agree with. Yeah. So having been in these situations, how do you think we should approach this for residents and fellows? Like, what do you think are the Mm -hmm. things we should be doing to make sure that they maintain well-being? I think like what we've had at our department and what you started, the wellness committee, I mean, is a small piece of like just raising awareness, demonstrating an openness, creating a pathway for people to come if they need help. I think that's so important. It's awesome that the ACGME has made that a priority. I mean, in the past, you can imagine these pyramid scheme residencies where you have like 10 interns come in and they only graduate two people per year and everybody's getting like weeded out and everything. Like it'd be enough to drive someone nuts. And, um, it's good that you know things are changing in that way. On the other hand, when you make these kinds of commitments on an administrative, like systemic level, by the time what the ACGME wants actually percolates down into residency programs, it becomes like busy work and like oh, fill out this form and do this checklist and you know. And then as a resident, I remember just filling out these things like yeah, my well-being is fine. Just leave me alone. I got a lot of work to do. Like <laughs> and I don't want, if I put that I'm not well, they're going to hassle me and it's going to be more work. And so uh, like just getting through the form was just another nuisance as a part of my day. Right. But on the other hand, there's not really another way to do it. What is the ACGME supposed to do? Making a commitment to these things is huge. 
what strategies can there be on a department level? I mean, I mentioned the wellness committee, lectures, bringing in outside physicians with different ideas about these things. We've had talks about burnout from people that actually know about burnout and are specialists in that. So I, I think there's a lot that can be done. Fundamentally, though, it's about raising awareness and demonstrating openness such that people who do feel something that they're confused about or, or need help with, they have somebody that they can go and look and sit down with and make eye contact and say, like, I need some help. That yeah. That's a must. Yeah, providing the time and space for those conversations, I think, is critical. No doubt. And you can't mandate those conversations. No, I mean, it, it kind of takes some sort of, from the person suffering, like I'm imagining a resident or something like that, like it does take some sort of internal drive on their part or internal motivation to ask for help. And that's that's challenging for all the reasons we've already talked about. Yeah, well, and the stigma also makes it more difficult because people try to hide this stuff and they don't, you know, talk to their peer group. So yeah, I've t- talked to the residents here about this several times, but if you feel like there's somebody struggling, I think the other piece is to talk to them and approach mm-hmm. them if you're concerned about something because they may not come to you or, you know, even if you're really good friends with them or close to them, they may not approach you first. And mm-hmm. if you're concerned about somebody, I think the other key thing is to reach out. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I have reached out to friends in the past. Like, for instance, recently, a friend of mine just wasn't really responding to text messages, and that's not really like him. And so I called him, like, hey, hey, what's going on with you? And he, and I think it's just because I've been in that place where, like, I, you know, kind of hole up and become not as responsive, both at, with friends and, and things at work, actually. It's, it's, not, it's not that easy to reach out to somebody else in the same vein. I think my personal experience makes me more likely to do that. But I mean, if you're not somebody who experiences depression, I mean, I'm sure it gets harder to recognize in someone else, even if you're close to them. But there's certainly no harm in questions and a a friendly conversation. And, you know. Yeah. Just how are you doing? Yeah. Can we grab lunch? Yeah. I mean, the how are you doing? I, I, I have to be conscious to be to like actually give a real response to that question. And usually I don't, you know, but the lunch sitting down with somebody, you know, spend 20 minutes with them. I think that's that's a way to learn about them, see what's going on and then provide any help you can. Sometimes helping is just sitting and nodding along. Right. Listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. And then, you know, as faculty, I think it's even harder. Right. Because we don't have any mandates that regulate our lives, right? The 80-hour rule doesn't translate into faculty time, and neither do these other ACGME rules. So what do you think would help faculty maintain well-being? It's true that we don't have these work hour, you know, limits, but at the same time, I work way less now than I do in residency, thank God, you know. (laughs) I think wellness programs, and there are a lot of workplaces that even offer in-house therapy, Vanderbilt, where I trained, actually, I I saw an in-house therapist there and they told me, like, you're obviously, I mean, all this is in place. You're not the first person to experience this sort of thing. There was just such a system in place to help faculty and residents. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, I think we have something like that here as well. Yeah, from a systemic level, I think it takes some awareness of these things and to create ways that people can go in confidentially and ask for help. Right. I I think that's the only way. It can be tough to try to manage your work schedule and make appointments and and that sort of thing. 
that can be, it can just be pretty challenging to make a certain time and then guarantee that you're going to be there. I've had to move around so many appointments because things come up. And so having something like in your work that, that can help is huge. And I do think that mental health professionals are more aware of that as well. So I, I think that shouldn't be your limiting factor for mm-hmm. why you don't seek mm-hmm. care because they know that your schedule could change. And, and they, so. they also get, I mean, taking care of people with mental health issues, I'm sure they get all kinds of cancellations and that sort of thing that they have to kind of just accept and deal with. Yeah. You know? So, you know, we're surgeons, right? So mental Indeed. health wellness, burnout, all this is woo-woo, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't really something that we... I love woo-woo, though. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you say to the skeptic who says, oh, you know, this is a a load of hogwash and we just need to, you know, do what we need to do? Yeah, I mean, I can remember thinking that, like, depression was silly when I was in high school. I I think I thought, I remember saying it was BS. And um, PTSD, I've had some, like, personally, I was like, eh, you know, whatever just get over it and I've had some patients be like oh I don't really think that's a thing and then I talk to people with PTSD and it's obviously something that's real to those people to say that something is woo I mean it just it's just kind of admitting your own ignorance like just because you haven't experienced something you're going to claim that it doesn't exist I mean that's it's pretty juvenile at this point you know to do something like that really I think that those parts of my personality are what make me a better clinician because I can empathize with anybody and I can see when somebody's struggling, I can see it in their eyes and I can get them towards help. I think it's helped my clinical practice in a lot of ways. And there can be like a, the the downside though is that there can be like an overload of empathy where it's almost like a, something that's keeping you from helping someone or, or distracting you a bit. Somebody, comes in with ear pain, for instance, and has this huge mental health uh, history. It's a, uh, that's a part of our evaluation of their ear pain, but like it's not our job to go in some sort of deep dive with them and heal their like deepest psychological issues. That's not th- something we do. And so there's a balance there. But overall, I'd say to those people, like I mean, suffering is is a powerful learning experience. No, I don't think many people have that realization while it's going on. I know I didn't. Um, it was just like. This sucks. Now, as I look back with an eye, I'm appreciative of all the aspects of my personality. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That was well put. So what about me, for example? I know wellness is important. I, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid here, but I'm a type A personality, right? Yeah. So I have a lot of trouble separating work life. That's all work all the time. Mm-hmm. So how, what would your advice be to somebody like that who you know, is doing fairly well, but just doesn't know how to turn it off. Get a hot tub. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I I mean, no, not everybody can go get a hot tub, but I (laughs) I spontaneously bought a hot tub last year at the recommendation of of my therapist, actually. And (laughs) it was a total game changer um, for me. It's like one of those things where like, no matter how bad I feel, I can go get in there. And when I get out, I'm like just wiped clean and I I don't know. I got a fresh mind going on. So someone like you, I, I would recommend that definitely. <laughs> All right, I'll uh, I'll tell my husband we need to get a hot tub. But there, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but there's a lot of great ways to really meditate, which is kind of. I mean, it's not like you shouldn't have thoughts while you meditate or anything like that. It's the process of looking at those thoughts, where they come from, what they mean, how they affect me, and. 
any exercise that focuses and increases concentration is helpful. And so that's meditation. That's like bird watching. You can get that app uh, Calm on your phone. It has a lot of great guided meditations. There's yoga where you include a component of moving your body with breath. And, and what happens is just entering a state of focused calm where bad things just aren't there, you know? And the more that I'm in a place where I'm not thinking about these things, I kind of like hardwire my brain and body towards better states of consciousness and well-being. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for people listening, I think some important things to just say are there are sometimes other external signs of well-being issues and burnout. So things like over-medicating yourself with alcohol and drugs, things like having professionalism issues at work. So if you're seeing those among your colleagues, I would highly recommend that you have a sit down with them and check in and see what's going on. Because a lot of times those are symptoms or signs of something else that's deeper that's going on and oftentimes can be the first sign that something's wrong. Yeah, I think it's really self-medication, right? I mean, I think that's that's what it is. And it doesn't really work. Tempor- you can experience temporary states of what's perceived as well-being or, or happiness or comfort or whatever, but what's going to come after that is, is not going to make it worth it, you know? A lot of people get in that cycle because they're afraid to seek help or they're they're just not getting the help they need. Is there anything else that you want to add? I don't know why I, I'm I'm thinking about PTSD and I, I don't really I can say that when I found my dad, it imprinted very heavily on me. I'd spent the whole day before with him and he just wasn't himself. He was like a mask of himself and he told me he bought a gun and I, I just didn't think it would I didn't even entertain the possibility that he would do something like that as soon as he left I, I was on the phone with my mom and we had this plan to like for her to come visit and, and they, they lived separately and for all of us to like rally around my dad um, we just didn't get to him in time and um I'd say it's not something you really want to sit with when somebody, when you get, somebody tells you, you know, they have a plan and they don't, they seem off. I, I really, I'd say just don't let them leave, leave your site, you know, because um, it's a lot to deal with to think, God, if I'd just done X, you know, and after somebody's gone, you know, unfortunately that's it. And there's, there's no bringing them back. And so there, there was a lot of guilt there. Like I, I picture, I imagine in my mind the times that like my dad called and I was like, oh, it's just too much to deal with, you know, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't pick it up. And now those moments are like, I got to sit with that and live with that. Um, yeah, but you didn't make that final decision. No. I mean, I, I'm, I'm way better now. Yeah. You know, but at the time, it was t- for a long time, it was totally my fault. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it was my fault. I'm a doctor. I couldn't help him. I should I should have quit my job and gone to all of his appointments with him. You know, there's those kinds of thoughts. Because I'd do anything to have him back and have him here. PTSD is really strange. Like, I, I got to a, like, for a, a couple of years, whenever I saw a gun or, you know, in a movie, if somebody would, you know, shoot themselves or something like that, it would just take me right back to that 
moment of walking in that room. And it's not like, oh, I just see what I saw and that's it. It's like I feel all the weight of what happened, like like it just happened again over and over and over again. And, you know, I don't think I had PTSD like the guys returning from Vietnam and that sort of thing, but I definitely know it's real and it's debilitating. I guess the only thing that I'd say is, you know, if you're if you're worried about somebody, just talk to them and don't don't hesitate to talk to them. Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I think that the takeaway here is that we all struggle. We all have stresses in our lives. Those can be personal. They can be professional. We lose patients. We lose family members. There is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There and is hope. There are people that care about you. Make sure that you connect with those people. Yeah. yeah. Call your family. Talk to your friends. Enjoy life. Do fun things. All right. Thanks so much for Thank being you. on the show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Until next time, wishing you success and joy.